Well, I'm excited to continue our series on the book of John. We are actually going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. So if you even want to begin to turn there, uh, that'll be great. Uh, We've got two more weeks. So we're going to finish up the resurrection today and a little bit of the commissioning of the disciples next week. And then the following three weeks, we're actually going to be doing a mini series on marriage and family that I'm extremely excited about. I think, uh, man, we we have a context of people here at Wellspring that, that kind of range from lots of family. I mean, there's just a lot of families here with kids. And so I'm sure you guys have it all figured out. I do not. So I thought, man, it may even help me a little bit to raise my kids and love my wife a little better to talk about this. So I'm excited about the next couple of weeks. But this week, we're going to continue to look at really probably one of the most important scriptures in the book of John, the resurrection. Now, here's what's been happening up until this moment, right? You've got John that has been talking about who Jesus is. We've had all these I am statements, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But what we're about to experience now is we're going to see that Jesus fulfills everything that he's been telling the disciples about. And if you remember, if you've been with us for this whole series, there's been this idea of belief that John uses, right? It's this belief that moves us, propels us into action. It's it's a, a belief that is a verb, It's something that combines with faith and commitment to Jesus. And he says, whoever would believe on Jesus will inherit eternal life. Whoever believes that he is the son of God, that he is the bread of life, that he is the living water, that he is the good shepherd, whoever would believe on him will inherit salvation. You know, here's what's interesting, right? The reality is for some of us, When we came to saving knowledge, like when you put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as Lord, it was like an instantaneous thing. Like one day you were not a Christian, the next day you woke up, you were a Christian. You had placed your faith in Jesus. For others of us, it's a a kind of a progression of faith. It's It's this journey of God proving over and over and over, I am who I say I am. I love you and I'm for you. And at some point, finally, your heart goes, I'm all in. There's really only three categories of people in this room this morning when it comes to salvation. There's those of you that would say, yes, without a doubt, I've placed my faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as Savior. I am a Christian. There's some of you that say, man, I'm in this journey. It's not like I have zero belief, zero faith, but I haven't fully committed to Christ yet. I'm not all in on salvation yet. You're in a journey headed towards that maybe, but you're not there yet. And then lastly, there would be those They'd say, man, I just haven't even looked at what belief and faith looks like in Christ. It's kind of like a light switch, right? Like there may be a progression to our salvation, but either the lights are on or off. Like you hit the light switch, the lights come on, you're on. But I don't know if y'all have ever taken your light switch, it's kind of gone in between. It starts making that kind of like, and you're like, I think I'm going to die right now. Like you can be in this progression where you're not on the off switch, but the lights are still not on. It's the same for salvation, guys. You may, you may not be flipped to the, on, the off switch, but you're not on on yet. And so what we've got to come with this morning is the realization, hey, where do I fall in this category? Where am I in this journey? And here's what I want you to think about for a second. If you have placed your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as Savior, do you remember the moment you were finally like, I'm all in? Do you remember the moment that you were like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing Jesus as my Lord? Do you remember what it felt like to finally have your sin dealt with? To have the the spirit of God come and indwell in you. Do you remember kind of that lightheartedness that you were walking with all of a sudden as you begin to finally, the lights came on. Do you remember it for yourself? That's why you're here, right? Like Jesus has done this, something radical in you and you're like, man, I'm following him with my life. And that was the day, that was the moment that finally the lights 
came on. That's your testimony. And I would ask you a question. When is the last time you've shared what Christ has done in you with someone else? Psalms talks over and over about what it means to use our testimony for the glory of God. It says this in Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Like when's the last time you sat across the table with someone and said, let me tell you what Jesus has done for my soul. Psalm 96, 3, declare, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all people. There's something powerful. Our, our, our testimony does not save people. The gospel is what saves. But when we begin to talk about what the gospel has done in us and how it has transformed us, there's power in that. And when we look at John chapter 20, the resurrection is the centerpiece of this chapter, okay? It's the most important part of everything that we're going to talk about. But I don't know if you know this, but this is also the point where John finally comes to saving faith. This is the moment he's telling us, he's recounting to us his testimony of when all of a sudden he was like, man, I've been in this progression of following Jesus. I've seen him do great things. But when I entered into this tomb, I gave my life to Jesus. I was full in. I knew that he was the Messiah. And so John in chapter 20 is using this moment not only to declare the resurrection and the power that is, ha that is had in the resurrection, but also that this was the moment for him that he was like, all right, dude, I'm all in. Forget feeding the 5,000. Forget walking on water. This dude just rose from the dead and I'm all in. And so this is an amazing story. I don't know if you know this, but really the resurrection is what all of Christianity hinges on. We talk about the resurrection at Easter. I don't know if you have churches that you've been at churches before that talk about it more than just Easter, but all of our faith hinges on this moment. Like Jesus could have died for our sins, lived a perfect life, but he was still in the ground. You and I would have no salvation. If he did everything he did, but he did not raise from the dead, then there's nothing that we're living for at this point because he didn't have victory over sin. He may have died for sin, but he didn't have victory over sin and death. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. I think we have it on the screen. Here's what Paul's talking to a group of people that say, man, there's no resurrection. And here's what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith, your and I's faith is in vain. If Christ was not read, raised from the dead. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Like this is the truth, guys. Like the resurrection is so powerful, so profound that if it doesn't happen, you and I's faith is in vain and we're still in our sins. And then he goes on to say this. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished like the dead have no hope. In verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He, Paul says this, look, if the resurrection has not happened and you and I are doing this thing, but there's no eternal life, there's no resurrection of the dead, we are of most men to be pitied. Like if all we're living for is trying to follow Jesus now, we're of most men to be pitied if there is no eternal life. And so here's what I would say for us this morning before we jump into chapter 20. Man, this is a story that you and I have heard a ton and for some of us that are in that category of the lights on, it's like, yeah, I know, that's what saved me. 
But man, can we come this morning with a little bit of like fear and trembling in our hearts that this, this thing, this event in history, time and space of Jesus coming back from death literally transformed you and I for the rest of eternity. And if you're in this room and you're in the other category where it's like the light switch isn't quite on, I want to tell you what John has said he has written this account for. I'm going to start with literally the end of the chapter. I want you to look at verse 30 of chapter 20, the very end of this. Everything that John has been writing is for this purpose. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose for what we're about to read, his purpose of declaring his testimony, his purpose of telling us this event and not another event is so that you and I would come together and we would go, oh my gosh, how is it possible that Jesus came back from the dead? He is who he says he is. He's the son of God and in him there is life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Life is found in the resurrection. And so with that being said, with those lenses on, let's look at chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. I love this. Like John's writing this, and he's like, he came to Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's him. He's like, I'm the one who Jesus loved. Everybody else, I don't know, but he loved me. And he said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so the beginning is this. You've got Mary Magdalene who literally had seven demons inside of her, and Jesus casts out the demons, transforms her life forever. She knows he's the Messiah. She is now in sorrow because everything she had hoped in is dead in the grave. And just like you and I would do when we experience loss, she can't sleep. She wakes up early that morning, and she heads to the tomb just to sit at the tomb and go, man, I thought this was it. This is where hope was, was at, and now it's buried and gone. But when she arrives, the tomb is empty. And she runs back to Peter and John, the disciple who Jesus loved. And she says, I don't know where they've taken Jesus. Now, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on apologetics. And that's just like kind of like intellectual proof that like we're not just following in blind faith here, but I do want to give you three things that are super important, I think, to, to know about the resurrection. There are three ways mainly that people try to discredit that Jesus came back to life, right? And that makes sense. Like if we stop for a second, let's take a step back and we're going, as, as people, we are believing that a dude came, lived perfectly, died, and came back to life. The rest of the world who hasn't placed their faith in Jesus, hasn't seen that he is true, that's a little bit crazy. And so they've got to come up with explanations for why this didn't happen, right? The world is going, okay, there's got to be some logical explanation for how Jesus comes back to life and people see him. And so I want to give you the three most, most used ways that people will say that. And the first is this, it's called the swoon theory. And this is actually like a res uh, resuscitation theory, okay? And what, this, what people would say, like these are smart people, worldly smart people, uh, maybe foolish in our eyes, right? But they, here's what they would say, okay, there's no way a dude comes back to life. So it had to be the swoon theory. That dude had to resuscitate. And so when he was on the cross, all that stuff happened, but he didn't really die, he just passed out. 
And they pull him up and they wrap him in hundreds of pounds of linen cloth. They place him in a tomb. They roll this thousand pound stone into like a divot where they can't even come out. And then in the cool, this is literally what they say, in the cool and the dark and the damp tomb, it resuscitated him. That was all he needed. And he, he woke up and he was like, oh, I'm buried in 150 pounds of, of linens. I'll just take this off. I'm going to roll this tomb away. And, I, and, and that's how he was never dead. Now, to you and I, that's like, that, that sounds crazy. But man, I, this is an argument. This is one of the main arguments against the resurrection. And I just want us to remember a couple of things that happened just so that if you run into somebody at your next party and they're talking about the swoon theory, because I know that's what everybody talks about when they gather, the swoon theory and theological apologetics, you can use the arguments against it. But here's what it says. All right, we, we need to think about this. One, the first is this. Jesus was scourged by the cat of nine tails 30, 30 something times, right? People literally died by that flogging. So they whoop him to death. Then they say, hey, I want you to carry your cross up to Golgotha. And he puts the cross on his shoulders. It's so heavy. If you remember, he's like, man, I can't do this. So they have to get someone else. And then they nail him to a cross with huge spikes in his hands and in his feet. And and if you know anything, the Romans were like expert executioners. Like this is what these guys did for a living. They said, what's the best way to kill somebody? Let's put them on a cross. Let's beat them. Let's do this. They were pretty good at knowing whether or not someone was dead. And so Jesus hangs for six hours suffocating for the sins of the world. And then at the end, they come and they're breaking the legs of everybody because it's time to get them off. And they come to Jesus and they're like, bro, he's been dead for a while. And so they thrust a spear into his side and blood and water come out. And they take him down. They literally wrap him up in hundreds of pounds of linen. They place him in a tomb. They close it with several men. And then he is dead and gone. But somehow, the dampness and the coolness... Not medicine, not anybody helping. Jesus is strong enough to get up and literally roll the tomb away. And the last is this. They placed soldiers in front of this tomb. Why? One, there was all all kinds of tomb raiders back then. But two, there's been a little bit of a whisper that these disciples have been talking about. Jesus has been talking about that he may come back to life. And so the Romans are like, look, we're putting some some guards here because they're not going to come steal this body and pretend like this happened. Literally the punishment, if the tomb got raided and the body was gone for those soldiers was death. So you got, some, you got some literally warriors hanging out and if they don't guard this tomb, they're being put to death. But somehow Jesus rolls it back, sneaks past those guys and he came back to life, right? He was never dead. He was just, he just swooned. And so this is theory number one. There's some great ways for you to prove that that's just silly. The next is this, and this is argued a lot, the hallucination theory. If you've read your Bible, you know that 500 plus people saw Jesus when he, he came back to life. And so what they're saying is literally 500 plus people all hallucinated the very same thing. They all had this crazy vision over 40 days, seeing the exact same thing, hearing the exact same things, and they just didn't know what was happening. And so literally doctors with like smart people have come and said, That's, that would be more of a miracle than someone coming back to death, from the dead if 500 people over the course of 40 days all had the same dream and vision that changed their lives forever. I love how one guy said, he says this, hallucinations usually happen only once, except to the insane. This one returned many times to ordinary people. 500 separate Elvis sightings may be dismissed. Right? If 500 dudes over the U.S. said, I saw Elvis, I think. We could go, those guys are insane. But he says this, but if 500 simple fishermen in Maine saw, touched, and talked with him at once in the same town, that would be a different matter. 
right? There's something indescribable about 500 people walking and talking and touching Jesus that transformed their life forever. The last is this, the conspiracy theory, which we all love. We all love conspiracies. And this is the last one. The disciples stole the body. It's obvious. Dude wasn't dead. Our dude may have been dead, but he didn't come back to life. The disciples stole his body. But here's what I, would, I want to tell you, and I don't want to spend a long time on this one. Here's the easiest thing for me to, to think about that makes sense to me. Man, there's guys that will die for a lie, but, but they think it's truth, right? Like, man, we see that. Well, I mean, we see that in 9-11. Dudes that are believing a lie think it's truth and are willing to die for that. But no one's willing to die for a lie if you know it. Right? Not only is it nearly impossible to keep a lie, like if there's just two of you, the, the stress between trying to keep a lie is, is just overwhelming. But can you imagine there's like 500 of us who are like, all right, guys, we all have to say the same thing. Like that doesn't make it very long with 500 people trying to keep a lie. But the last is this. When you think about people being boiled alive, set on fire, drowned, put in prison, beaten, families killed. Like there comes a point where it's like, all right, Peter told, we, told me I was supposed to say this thing, but homeboy is literally about to set me on fire. I'm like, well, it's all a lie. Peter, this is Peter's thing. I'm good. I'm, I'm out. Like you don't, not all these people die for a lie. Something radically transformative happened and their lives were changed forever because they encountered the risen Christ. And so those are the three main arguments for against the resurrection. I know you needed those, one of those. Let's keep going on. So here's what it says. Verse two, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples from whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going towards the tomb. Verse four is one of my favorite verses in scripture. Like John's pinning this by the, the authority of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, here's the, the, the details that matter most. Like I want people's lives to be transformed by reading in this. In verse four, he says this. Both of them, John and Peter, were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Like, this is one of my favorite scriptures. He's like, dude, Peter was out of shape. Fat boy didn't make it to the tomb. I beat him. Just want Pete to read this one day. And remember, when we took off on this race, I, I beat you there. And so he continues on. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him. Just, just another like, hey, Pete, I was there. I'm glad you caught up. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus, had not, uh, head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. This, this is important. Like, why did John tell us that the, the head cloth was folded up and put by itself, not with the other linen cloths? Most people believe this, and this is pretty amazing. Uh, the Jewish tradition for if the master was having dinner and he had a servant that was serving his table, there was two ways to know what you were supposed to do if you were the servant. If the master's eating and he takes his, his, uh, his napkin, crumples it up, throws it on the table, you knew as the servant, all right, now it is my time, that is my sign to come clean the table so that they can continue to do what they're doing. But every now and again, the servant would get up, or the master would get up and know that he was gonna return. And so he would take his cloth, he would fold it up neatly and set it beside his, his plate, and that told the servant, hey, look, just hold off, be patient, because I'm coming back. Don't come clean this up right now. I'm coming back, I'm going to return. And here's what I think and many others believe. I think that Jesus rises from the dead 
And that dude took his, his cloth that was over his head and he folded it up nicely and he laid it aside from everything else so that when John enters in and Peter enters in, they look at it and they go, man, that's a sign that Jesus is going to return. That's a sign that says, hey, hold on. Be patient, servant. I'm coming back. And that, that's a sign for you and I. That's hope for you and I that he wasn't just finished at Calvary. Like that's not the end of the story. He's going to return. And he's telling his people, hey, look, just be patient. I'm coming back. And so they continue on. And here's where we see John's testimony come, come into fruition. Verse, uh, verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who reached the tomb first. He, he, like, he can't get over the fact that he beat Peter. I don't know. I don't know if they erased a ton, but three times in two paragraphs, he's like, I got him. Also went in and he, and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And here's what happens, right? John enters in and he sees the linen cloth. He sees the folded face cloth. And I think in that moment, what must have happened is everything that he had been walking with Jesus, all these things that he thought, I think I understand what you're saying. Some of the things he, he didn't understand all flooded his mind and it made sense. He goes back and he goes, man, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the good shepherd and my, my sheep know my voice. He said, there's going to come a day where there's going to be sorrow, but just be patient because that sorrow is going to be turned to joy. It's better that I go so that the helper may come. All of these things that Jesus had been saying, I think in that moment, he's looking at the cross and he goes, he is the Messiah. Right? There's this moment where he said, this temple is going to be taken down, but in three days, I'll build it back up. I think John goes, he came back from the dead. Like he's defeated death. No one took his body. I saw him dead and he's alive and he's gone. And I believe that he is the son of God. John believes and has faith and it transforms his life. And then it continues on, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So the disciples ran back to get the other dudes. Mary's still there. She's like, I don't understand what's going on. Where's the body? And she wept and she stood to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head of the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, my teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You know, if you were here a while back and we did talk about Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. If you'll remember, he said, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep's name. And my sheep know my voice and they hear me and they follow me. I, I think this is like the most beautiful picture of that lived out. Mary, talking to Jesus, has no idea who he is. But when, she, when he calls her name, she goes, man, that's, that's my teacher. That's, that's my, my savior, my Messiah. Why? Because the good shepherd knows our name and he calls it and we hear it and we respond. This is one of those marks we said in the beginning of this series that says, hey, this is how you know that you know that you're in Christ. Does he call your name and do you follow? And for Mary, she heard her name called and she followed. 
still brings so much hope to you and I this morning that Jesus knows your name. Like those of you that stood up this morning for prayer, like he knows your name. He knows where you're at and he, is, he cares and he's concerned and he has plans and purpose for each one of you guys and myself in this room. He knows our name. And then he says this, verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He's like, look, I'm gonna be here a little bit longer. She obviously went and like threw herself on him. I, I get that. But then here's something that if we read carefully, uh, we'll see something amazing, but I think we could, might miss it if we're not looking for it. Listen to this, 17. He said, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Here's what's amazing to me. There's never been a point in the scripture yet where Jesus has called the disciples brothers. He's called them servants. He's called them friends. He's called them sheep, but he's never called them brothers. And I, here's what I believe and most scholars would believe. Jesus has come back from death He's defeated the grave. Salvation has been offered. And all of a sudden, these disciples who have been following him, all of a sudden, John, who goes, I believe, is following Jesus. And he says, hey, you are now my brother. You're not just my friend. You're my brother. And my father is your father because you're sons and daughters of the king. My God is your God because he's defeated sin and death. He has ushered in salvation. He's saying, go get my brothers. Go get, go get my father's sons. Tell them to come meet me. And this is a beautiful thing that happens to you and I when we place our faith in Jesus. You become a son and a daughter of the king. He knows your name. He calls you son and daughter, and he has plans and purpose. He is your God. He is your father. And he says, go get him. And then we look at two quick little things that happen as we close out this chapter, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is where us gathering on Sundays really happens. This is like the first church gathering on a Sunday. And let's see what the church is doing. Jesus is dead. They know the tomb's empty, but they're not sure what's going on. On that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So the first church service where Jesus shows up, the, Jews, the, the disciples are hanging out with the doors locked, scared of the Jews, and Jesus shows up and he says, guys, peace be with you. Like you don't have to lock the doors anymore. You don't have to be scared. I've defeated death. I've defeated sin. I've got a purpose for you. And he says, peace that I bring to you. Verse 20, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here's what's amazing to me, guys. The first church is gathered together. Jesus shows up and the doors are locked. They're huddled, huddled together. They're going, we just want comfort. We want safety. We want security. Jesus shows up. He's like, guys, I'm bringing peace. And then he says this, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Man, what did the Father send Jesus to do? He sent him to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim this gospel, even if it cost death. And he says, now it's your turn. Now it's the church's turn. I quit locking the doors. 
Quit hiding in comfort from the world. I didn't, I didn't come to hide and hunker down and talk about who I was. I went out and I pursued sinners ferociously, and now I'm calling you as the church to go and to do the same thing. And this is difficult. And I think that's why he goes, okay, I'm going to breathe on you the Spirit of God because you need the power of the Spirit to do this. But guys, we live in a world right now where comfort and security, locked doors is like the thing you need to be doing, right? Like forget locked doors. Let's lock our gates so people can't get down our driveway. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, this, this life is not about sheltering yourself from everything else, insulating yourself from the world. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out to do the same thing I did, which is to proclaim the kingdom of God. To use your testimony for the mission of God. Quit sitting in the church with locked doors, comforting and holding everybody's hand and go out and preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. This is what he's calling you and I to. Man, I'm telling you, it's hard, right? Like it's easy to like come in here and gather and sing some songs, high five our friends, bump a few fists and go home and watch the Cowboys. Like that's a good Sunday. That's easy. I like that. But man, Jesus calls us in and he says, hey, look, I want you to gather together. I want you to talk about my name. I want you to grow in faith. I want you to worship. But, but then you're going out. The other six days of the week, you're out there in the world and you're proclaiming the gospel. This is the mission that I've called you to and I've empowered you by the Spirit to do this. This is for you and I. This is our call. And so he continues on and he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is kind of a weird scripture, if we're honest. In fact, this is where the Catholic Church would say, this is, this is where penance comes from. The priest can uh, forgive sins and he can withhold sins until penance. But the reality is, this, when we look at this in, in context of the rest of the Bible, what it's saying is Jesus says, go, go preach the gospel. Go preach repentance and forgiveness of sin. And when you do that, two things are going to happen. Some people are going to see that. They're going to see their sin. They're going to see their need for me, and they're going to follow and have their sin forgiven. Others are going to see that. They're going to hear. They're going to go, I am probably sinful, but I'm not turning to God, and they're going to be withheld. He says, go and preach the gospel. And then we finish with this, old doubting Thomas. I, I'm, I'm glad we have Thomases, honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm not usually like this. I'm more of like a Peter, run fast, and well, slow apparently. I'm definitely like Peter then. <laughs> run slow, but just jump into the tomb once you get there. Don't need, a lot of, uh, don't need a lot of things to help me believe what I'm gonna believe, but some people do. And here's, here's what happens. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Just a hey, honest question here. Who's kind of built that way? Like you got to know the facts before you're going headlong into something. Anybody just, okay, we got a couple. My wife's that way. I'm the opposite. I'm like, give me like two facts and I'll be an expert. But I'm glad for people that go, man, I want to know. I want to assess. I really want to know for sure what I'm doing before I step into this. And he says, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch. And so here's what it says. Eight days later, they're back at, at church again. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. They, they still hadn't quite gotten this commission to go yet. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
Now, this is why I would not make a good Jesus. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. Like, if I, know, if I know Thomas has said some things, like, I got to touch his scars, I want to see the, the side, I'm going in there and I'm making a fool of him. I'm, just, I'm going to embarrass him in front of everybody for his doubt. That's just what I would do, and that's why I'm not Jesus. But here's what's amazing to me is Jesus responds in a totally different way. Look what he does. He says this, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, and I love this, if I'm a disciple too, like can you imagine me in the room, you're worshiping, you got the one dude that's like, y'all are all idiots. Until I see him, touch him, I'm not believing, I don't care what you guys are saying, I'm not following you on this crazy idea of the resurrection. And Jesus appears in the room with locked doors. I'm in the corner, I'm like, oh, it's going down. <laughs> and he turns to Thomas, you're like, yep, here it comes. But here's what he does. He says this, said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Man, I love this about the Lord. I don't know if you guys ever have moments where you kind of just struggle with some doubt. You're a little slow to be obedient. You're going, man, I don't really know, God, if this is what you're calling me to. And, and the Lord's not like me. <laughs> He's not going to go, you're an idiot. I'm about to show you why you're an idiot. He goes, man, come, come and touch, Thomas. Come and feel and, and, and quit disbelieving. Like, believe in me, I'm here. And I love you. And I've got purpose for you. And he treats us the same way as his children. And here's what Thomas answered and said. My Lord and my God. Thomas, much like John, been walking with Jesus, but all of a sudden sees the risen Christ and goes, man, this stuff is for real. And I'm in. I'm yours. And Jesus said to them, have you believed because you've seen me? This is a little shout out to us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right? Jesus can handle our questions. Jesus can handle our doubt. He's patient and he's kind and he's long-suffering. But he also says, hey, listen, there, there is an aspect of faith to follow me. And blessed are those that don't need to touch the hands, that don't need to see the spear hold, that follow me. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And then we end how we started. Now Jesus did, not, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's the question, I think, for us to respond this morning. I, I think the first is this. Jesus is, is very... Um, clear that the resurrection is what brings joy and hope and peace. Like I just wondered this morning as a, as a believer even, are you struggling with joy and hope and peace? Because Jesus shows up with his, with his boys and he says, hey, peace be with you. Peace I bring to you. Why? Because he has given us a future past today. Like it doesn't matter what the next five months looks like, five years looks like, 50 years looks like for you and I because there's coming a day where we're going to stand face to face with our king and everything else is going to fade away. He says, hey, listen, I've brought you peace. And then the next question is this. The, the resurrection is the commission to go proclaim the gospel. Like, guys, you... If you know Jesus, you know enough to tell someone else how to be saved. Like if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to tell someone else how to be saved. And the commission for you and I is not just to gather on Sundays and this to be like this compartment of our life where we go, cool, I check that box and now I'm going to go do everything else. Like this, this is everything. He is everything. 
He's the only box that has life and hope and peace and joy. And sometimes we go, man, I get that, but I'm going to go do all this other stuff. And we go, where's my peace? Where's my hope? Where's my joy? My walk with the Lord, it just seems stagnant. It seems dead. And Jesus is going, listen, it's because you're sitting in Sundays, singing some songs, listening to a dude talk, and going home and living your life. Like I've called you to something greater. I've called you to my mission to go out and proclaim the gospel and those are the places where you see me work because it requires the spirit of God. And so I just wonder this week, like what would it look like for us in this room to go, okay, I'm gonna do that. Like how would, how would China Spring look different? How would Waco look different? How would your workplace look different? How would your school look different if you just go, all right, man, today I'm in. Like this week I'm in, I'm proclaiming the gospel. I'm gonna tell people about how Jesus has saved me, what it's done in my life, and I'm telling them there's hope in him. What would Jesus accomplish through you and I if we were to live our lives that way? And then lastly, it's this. I think we still have to come face to face in this room and go, man, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Because John's whole purpose of this letter today for us was that we would believe. That we'd leave here and we'd go, man, I see that he is the king, that he is the Messiah, and I want that. And so I think it's a fair question for us to ask, man, are the lights on? Is the switch on on? Have we gone before him and said, I'm all in. You're mine. I see who you are. I've seen what you've done, and I follow you. Blessed are those who believe, who have not seen, for they will inherit life in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for John telling the, telling the, and recounting what you've done. This miraculous thing of you coming back to life. God, I know that we've heard it uh, as believers for as long as we've been believers, God. But may it never lose its awe, its wonder, its power. Because everything hinges on the fact that you came back from the dead. And Lord, I pray that we would be servants who see the napkin folded and we go, man, I'm going to patiently await because my Savior is coming back. And that would bring us hope and peace that surpasses our temporal circumstances. God, let us be a church that lives on mission. Let us not live a life of locked doors. God, that's uncomfortable. It gets messy sometimes. Doesn't always work out the way we want it to. But man, we want to live on mission because that's what you've called us to as the church. So help us, God. Empower us by your spirit to proclaim the gospel message, to share our testimony with those around us that we might see life and salvation come to our city. And so Jesus, in this time, would you have your way with us? And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.